Volume Three, Chapter Three of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Three, Chapter Three. And Dawn, sore trembling still and grey with fear, looked hardly forth, a face of heavier cheer than one which grief or dread yet half enshrouds. Swinburne. When Dyke came to herself, it was to find that she was sitting on the bank, supported by Miss Crupp's trembling arm, with her head on Miss Crupp's shoulder. Someone bending over her, could it be Lord Hemsworth with that blanched face and bare head, was wiping her face with the gentleness of a woman. "'Have I had a fall?' she asked dizzily. "'I don't remember. I thought it was Miss Crupp's who fell.' "'Yes, you've had a fall,' said Lord Hemsworth hurriedly. "'But you'll be all right directly. Don't be all night with that brandy, Lumley.' I suddenly perceived Mr. Lumley close at hand, trying to jerk something out of a little silver lamp into a tumbler. She had seen that lamp before. It had been handed round with lighted brandy in it with the mince pies. No one drank it by itself. Evidently there was something wrong. I, I don't understand, she said, beginning to look about her. A confused gleam of remembrance was dawning in her eyes, which terrified Lord Hemsworth. Oh, drink this, he said quickly, pressing the tumbler against her lip. Her teeth chattered against the rim. Miss Crupps was weeping silently. Di pushed away the glass and stared wildly about her. What was this great crowd of eyes kept back by a chain of men? What was that man in a red uniform with a trumpet craning forward to see? There was a sound of women crying. How dark it was! Where was the moon gone to? What is it? she whispered hoarsely, stretching out her hands to Lord Hemsworth and looking at him with an agony of appeal. What has happened? but he only took her hands and held them hard in his. If he could have died to spare her that next moment, he would have done it. "'When I say three, said a distinct voice near at hand, "'Gently, men. One, two, three. That's it.' Di turned sharply in the direction of the voice. There was a knot of people on the ice at a little distance. One was kneeling down. Another knelt too, holding a lantern ringed with mist. As she looked, the others raised something between them in a fur rug, something heavy, and began to move slowly to the bank. Her face took a rigid look. She remembered. She rose suddenly to her feet with a voiceless cry, and would have fallen forward on her face had not Lord Hemsworth caught her in his arms. He held her closely to him, and put his shaking, blood-stained hand over her eyes. Miss Crupps sobbed aloud. Mr. Lumley sat down by her, telling her not to cry, and assuring that it would all be all right. But when he was not comic, he was not up to much. There was no need to keep the crowd off any longer. Their whole interest centred in John, and they broke away in murmuring masses along the bank and down the ice in the wake of the little band with the lantern. Now that the lantern had gone, the place was wrapped in a white darkness. The other lights had apparently gone out, except the red end of a torch on the bank. The mist was covering the valley. "'Is he dead? Is he dead?' gasped Di, clinging convulsively to the friend who had loved her so long and so faithfully. "'No, Di, no,' said Lord Hemsworth, speaking as if to a child. "'Not dead, only hurt. And the doctor is here. He was on the ice when it happened. He was with you both almost as soon as I was. I'm going to take off your skates. Can you walk a little with my help? Yes?' It would be better to be going gently home. Put your hands in your muff. Here it is. You must put in the other hand as well. 
The bank is deep here. Lean on me. And Lord Hemsworth helped her up the bank and guided her stumbling feet towards the dwindling constellation of lights at the further end of the lake. A party of men passed them in the drifting mist. One of them turned back. It was Archie, his face streaming with perspiration. "'Did you get him?' asked Lord Hemsworth. "'Get him? Not a chance,' said Archie. He stood on the bank till Dawn and I were within ten yards of him, and then laughed and ran quietly away. He knew we could not follow on our skates, though he made a rush for him. By the time we got him off he was out of sight, of course. I expect he's doubled back and is watching among the crowd now.' "'Will you know him again?' "'No, he was masked. He, he would never have let me come so close to him if he had not been. I say, how is John?' Lord Hemsworth glared at Archie but the latter was of the species that never takes a hint, like his father before him, who was always deeply affronted if people resented his want of tact. He called it touchiness on their part. The touchiness of the world in general affords tactless persons a perennial source of offended astonishment. "'What are you frowning at me about?' said Archie, in an injured voice. "'What has become of John?' "'Hello, what's that? Why, it's the omnibus. They've been uncommonly quick about getting it down. My word, the horses are giving trouble!' They can't get them past the bonfires. "'Go and say Mrs. Tempest and Miss Crupps are coming,' said Lord Hensworth, "'and keep places for them.' He knew the omnibus had not been sent for them, but he did not want Di to realise for whom it was required. Archie hurried on. Miss Crupps and Mr. Lumley passed at a little distance. "'You are deceiving me,' gasped I. You, "'You mean it kindly, but you are deceiving me. He's dead. Did not Archie say he was dead?' It's no good keeping it from me. Lord Hemsworth tried to soothe her in vain. On the bank shot twice, she went on incoherently. I, I tried to get between, but it was no good, and I, I screamed. But you were all so long in coming. I never knew people so slow. You were too late, too late, too late. Lord Hemsworth was experiencing that unbearable wrench at the heart, which goes by the easy name of emotion. He was reading his death-warrant in every random word Di said. It appeared to him that he had always known that John loved Di, and yet until this evening he had never thought of it, and certainly never dreamed for a moment that she cared for him. He had not imagined that Di could care for anyone. The ease with which any man can marry any woman nowadays, the readiness of women to give their affection to anyone, irrespective of age, character and antecedents, has awakened in men's minds a profound and too well-grounded disbelief in women's love. The average woman of the present day is, as men are well aware, in love with marriage, and in order to attain that to that state a preference for one person rather than another is quickly seen to be prejudicial. For though love conduces to happy marriages, love conduces also to the catastrophe of single life, and is but a blind leader of the blind at best. Lord Hemsworth loved Di, but that was different. The fact that she, being human, might be equally attached to himself or to some other man had never struck him. It struck him now, and for a few minutes he was speechless. It was only a very great compassion and tenderness that was able to wrestle with and vanquish the intolerable pain of the moment. "'See, Di,' he said gently through his white lips, Look at that great tear and hole through your muff. I, I saw it directly I picked it up. A bullet did that, do you understand? A bullet that perhaps would have hit Tempest but for you. But you saved him from it. Perhaps he's better now and afraid you are hurt. 
There's the carriage coming to us. Let us go on to meet it. And in truth the great overly omnibus, with men at the horses' heads, was lurching across the uneven turf to meet them. "'Where is John?' asked I of Archie, peering at the empty carriage. "'The doctor would not have him lifted in, after all,' said Archie. "'They went on, on foot. We may as well go up in it.' And he helped in Lady Alice Fane and Miss Crupps, who came up at the moment. Lord Hemsworth followed Di and sat down by her. He was determined she should be spared all questioning. Mr. Lumley and Mr. Dorney got in, too, and sat silently staring straight in front of them. No one spoke. Archie stood on the step, and the long, lumbering vehicle turned and got slowly under way, the same in which such a merry party had driven to the ball the night before. As they reached the courtyard, a confused mass of people became visible within it, the guests of the evening, the girls standing about in silent groups, muffled to the eyes, for the cold had become intense, the men hurrying to and fro, getting out their own horses and helping the coachman to harness them. Through the darkness came the uplifted voices of Lindo and Fritz in hysterics of being debarred from taking part in the festivities. Carriages were beginning to drive off. There was no leave-taking. "'There's our omnibus,' said Mr. Lumley to Miss Crupps. "'That's Montague lighting the lamps. They would be looking for us.' And they got out and rejoined their party, nodding silently to the others who drove on to the hall door, Lord Hemsworth with them. He seemed quite oblivious of the fact that he was not staying at Overley. The hall was brilliantly lighted. Every carved lion and griffin on the grand staircase held its lamp. The house-party was standing about in the hall. They looked at the remainder as they came in, but no one spoke. Miss Fane was blinking in their midst. The other elder ladies who had stayed up at the castle whispered with their daughters. A blaze of light and silver came through the opened folding doors of the dining-hall, where supper for a large number had been prepared. "'Any news?' asked Lord Hemsworth, as he guided Di to an armchair. Miss Fane shook her head. "'They won't let me in,' she said. "'They've taken him to his room, and they won't let anyone in.' "'Who is with him?' said Di, in a loud, hoarse voice that made everyone look at her. She did not see what everyone else did, namely that the neck and breast of her grey coat was drenched with blood, not hers. The doctor and his sister are with him. They were both on the ice at the time. I think Lord Elver is there, too, and his valet. Lord Hemsworth went into the dining-hall, and came back with a glass of champagne and a roll. "'Bring things out to the people,' he said to the bewildered servants. "'They won't come in here for them.' And they followed with trays of wine and soup. Without making her conspicuous, he was thus able to force Di to drink and eat. She remembered afterwards his wearying pertinacity till she had finished what he brought her. The men, most of whom were exhausted by the pursuit of the assassin, or by carrying John up the steep ascent, drank large quantities of spirits. Archie, quite worn out, fell heavily asleep in an oak chair. The women were beginning to disappear in twos and threes. Everyone was dead beat. It was Lord Hemsworth who took the onus of giving directions, who told the servants to put out the lights from all the windows. Miss Fane was of no more use than a sheep waked at midnight, for an opinion on New Zealand lamb would have been. She stood about and ate sandwiches because they were handed to her, although she and the other chaperons had just partaken of roast turkey, went at intervals into the pitch gallery, at the end of which John's room was, and came back shaking her head. 
It was Lord Hemsworth who helped Di to her room while Miss Fane accompanied them upstairs. Di's room was still brilliantly lighted. Lord Hemsworth lingered on the threshold. "'You will promise me to take off that damp gown at once,' he said. Somehow there seemed nothing peculiar in the authoritative attitude which he had assumed towards Di. She and Miss Fane took it as a matter of course. "'Yes, change all her things,' said Miss Fane. "'Quite right, quite right.' "'Where is your maid? Can you get her?' asked Lord Hemsworth uneasily. "'I have no maid,' said Di, trying and failing to unfasten her grey-furred coat. He winced as he saw her touch it. Then an idea seeming to strike him, he closed the door and went downstairs again. The servant put out the lamps at the windows of the picture-gallery, leaving, with unusual forethought, one or two burning in the long expanse in case of need. In the shadow at the further end, near John's room, a bent figure was sitting, silently rocking itself to and fro. It had been there whenever he had ventured into the gallery. It was there still. It was Mitty. Mitty in her best violet silk that would stand of itself, and her black satin apron and her gold brooch with the mosaic of the Colosseum that John had brought her from Rome. She raised her wet face out of her apron as the young man touched her gently on the shoulder. "'They won't let me in to see him, sir,' said Mitty, the round tears running down her cheeks and hopping on to her violet silk. "'Me that nursed him since he was a baby. He was put into my arms, sir, when he was born. I took him for the month, and they won't let me in.' "'They will presently,' said Lord Hemsworth. "'He'll be asking for you, you'll see. And then how vexed he will be if he sees you've been trying.' "'And the warming pan, sir,' gasped Mitty, shaken with silent sobs pointed to that article laid on the settee. Oh, I got it ready myself. I was as quick as quick, and a bit of brown sugar in it to keep off the pain. And they said they did not want it, as if I didn't know what he'd like. He'll want his old Mitty, and he won't know they are keeping me away from him. Someone wants you very much, said Lord Hemsworth. Poor Miss Tempest, and she has no maid with her. She's not fit to be left to herself. Won't you go and see to her, Mitty? But Mitty shook her head. "'He may ask for me,' she said. "'I will stay here and come for you the first minute he asks,' said Lord Hemsworth, moving the rejected warming-pan and sitting down beside her on the hot settee. "'Poor Miss Tempest! And she tried so hard to save him. Won't you go to her? She has only Miss Fane with her.' "'Miss Fane,' said Mitty, evidently with the recollection of a long-standing feud. "'Much could she do a body? Doesn't know chalk from cheese.' She didn't even know when Master John had got the measles, though the spots was out all over him. Tell you nettle-rash, nurse, she says to me. And the same when he had them little ulcers in his throat. Miss Fane, indeed. And after a little more persuasion, Mitty consented to go, if he promised to come to her, if John asked for her. Lord Hemsworth gave a sigh of relief as Mitty went reluctantly away. He was in mortal anxiety about Di. He had a nervous misgiving, increased by his feeling of masculine helplessness to do anything further for her, lest she should fall ill or faint alone in that gaily-lighted room. For, of course, Miss Fane would not have remained. As indeed was the case. She was yawning herself out of the room when Mitty appeared. "'That's it, that's it,' she said, evidently relieved. "'Get to bed, dime. No use sitting up. We shall hear you in the morning.' And she departed to her own room. Di turned her white, exhausted face slowly towards the old woman, and vainly tried to frame a question. 
Mitty's maternal instinct was aroused by the sight of her lambs, Miss Dinah, sitting in her mist-damped clothes, which steamed where the warmth of the fire reached them. She made no effort to take off her walking things, but she was passive under Mitty's hands, as the latter unfastened them and wrapped her in her warm dressing-ground. "'I can't go to bed, Mitty,' said Di hoarsely, holding her gown. "'Don't make me. Let me come and sit in the nursery with you. We shall be nearer there, and then I shall hear.' There is no one to come and tell me here." The girl clung convulsively to the old woman, and the two went together to the nursery, and Mitty, after putting her guest into the rocking-chair by the fire, went down once more to ask for news. But there was no news. John was still unconscious, and the doctor would say nothing. Presently Mitty came tearfully back and sat down on the other side of the fire. Old Hemsworth, who was sitting up with Archie, I promised to come to the nursery the moment there was any change. The nursery still bore traces of the little party that had broken up so disastrously, for Mitty had invited the elite of the village ladies to view the carnival from the nursery windows. The rock buns, for which Mitty was celebrated, and one of Mrs. Alcock's best cakes, were still on the table, and Mitty's fluted silver teapot with a little nest of clean cups round it. Presently she got up, and, opening the corner cupboard, began to put them away. But the impulse of tidying was forgotten, and she caught sight of John's robin mug on the top shelf. She took it down, and stood holding it in her old, withered hands. "'I'll give it him myself,' she said, on his birthday, when he was five years old. Twenty-four years ago, come June. I thought some of his mother's family would have remembered his birthday if his father didn't. I thought something would have come by post.' but there wasn't so much as a letter. And Mrs. Alcock gave him the tin plate with the soldier on it, but I never let him eat off it. And we had Barker's little nephew to tea as he was learning to shoemackle, but nobody took no notice of his birthday except me and Mrs. Alcock. And when he went to school I kept his mug and his toys. He never had a many toys, but what there was I have em. And his clothes, my dear, everything since he was born, from his little cambric shirts, I have em all put away with a bit of camphor to his velvet suit, as I took him to Moor York to be measured for, on purpose to make him look pretty to his papa when he came home from abroad. But he never took a bit of notice of him, never." Mitty sat down by the fire, still holding the mug. "'And a lace collar he had with it, real lace, the best as money could buy. I might spend what I liked in him, but no one ever took no notice of him, not even in his first sailors and he with his pretty ways and his grave talk. Mrs. Alcock and me has often cried over the things he'd say. There's his crib still in the night nursery by my bed. I could not sleep without it was there. And the little blankets and sheets and pillow slips as belong, all put away, and not an arm bowled upon em. Oh, dear miss, many's the time I got em out and aired em, thinking maybe the day had come when he would have a babby of his own, and I should hold it in my old arms before I died and even if I was gone they'd be all ready, the bassinet only wanting muslin to it. And now, oh, my lamb, my lamb, and they won't let his old Mitty go to him. Amid his grief broke into a paroxysm of sobbing. Di looked at the old woman rocking herself backwards and forwards, and, rising unsteadily, she went and knelt down by her, putting her arms round her in silence. She had no comfort to give him words. It seemed as if her strong young heart were breaking. 
but he realised that Mitty's anguish for a love, knit up into so many faithful years, was greater than hers. As she knelt, a step came along the creaking garret gallery with its uneven flooring. It was Lord Hemsworth. He stood in the doorway with the wan light of the morning behind him. His face looked pinched and aged. "'He's better,' he said. "'He has recovered consciousness and has spoken. "'The other doctor has arrived, and they think all will go well.' And the two women who loved John clung and sobbed together. Lord Hemsworth looked fixedly at Di and went out. End of Volume 3 Chapter 3